knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Going, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology House. I'm Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn and we're going to be digging in today on the Sabbath in a few minutes and a couple episodes I'm going to link in our episode notes that we did before because I think they'll be helpful is specifically the law because that's an important uh, part of this discussion. We will talk to our guest about the law and then also our previous Sabbath episode, which is probably more basic episode. We're going to dig into it a little bit more. And it's kind of a new idea for you, isn't it, Angela? Yeah, I really appreciated this book um, because it was great at explaining the Sabbath um, sort of to someone who... I think it's very useful to people who already are Sabbatarian, but also to people who are new to the idea of Sabbath keeping. So it really did a good job explaining um, the background and just the idea of the Sabbath throughout Scripture from beginning to end through redemptive history. What's the purpose? What does it mean? What is it doing for us? So um, I really appreciated that. And the other thing I appreciate is it wasn't like a hard read, you know, mm, yeah. in, in my mind, like when I think of theological books, I kind of think of them on the, okay, this is, you know, a little more easy to read. You know, I can sit down and read it, uh, you know, from that point all the way up to, you know, I got to read the same paragraph five times to make sure I understand what it's saying. And this one was an, an easy read. I was able to read through it in a couple of days. Totally agree. It, it flows very well, and um, it's it's a quick and easy to digest read without being lightweight. I mean, there's some good deep stuff in here, and you know, it's 87 pages start to finish. That includes uh, title pages and end pages, and there are questions at the end of each chapter to kind of help you digest what's in there. So, easy read, helpful read. Really appreciated this book. And I learned some things and thought through some things I hadn't thought through before. As I, I read, definitely did. Although I had a lot more to learn than you, Colleen, but yeah, I agree. So I wanted to mention a couple things. Um, we had Pete Orta on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we mentioned that he was going to be releasing his own podcast. And he actually 
talked to him today, he released his first episode, although his first episode is very, very long and he not all the episodes will be as long as his first one, but it's called Christian Conversations Unfiltered, which I think Angela actually helped him come up with that name. Woohoo! I'll take my back check, please. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but I'll link it in the, in the episode notes also. So I got to tell you something that happened yesterday. I got this package in the mail and usually when a package comes in the mail, I know what's, what's coming, right? Mm -hmm. But this just had my name on it, Colleen Sharp, and it wasn't from anywhere that I remembered ordering anything. And I open it up. And there's a necklace in there and there was like a card with a verse on it about encouragement. And then there was a handwritten note and it was, it was very personable. So I was surprised that it didn't, it wasn't signed. Like, it seems like, I don't think the person wanted to remain anonymous. <laughs> uh, sure enough, I, I, had to, I went on all my social media trying to figure out who sent me this necklace. I was like going to do detective work to try to figure it out, <laughs> you know. And sure enough, it was from a gal in our group. So Aww. I just thought that was really neat and encouraging. And anyways, I was just really touched by it. And I'm wearing it and it's beautiful. We just so, have the sweetest ladies in our group. Yeah, this gal I've gotten to get to know, and she's just really a, a neat lady. And so she did end up messaging me saying, oh, I forgot to sign it. You know, she didn't tell me <laughs> for it to be, you know. Well, there, I mean, it was very personal personal, like, you know, how much she appreciates my friendship and stuff like that. And I just thought, this seems like I'm supposed to know who this is from. <laughs> so um, the only other thing is just want to remind everyone, especially if you're on the East Coast, especially if you're in New Jersey or the Philadelphia area, that the Conference on Suffering is coming up next week. So I'll link that in the episode notes and I will be there and um, would love to maybe get together with any theology gals that are there. So I think that's about it. And we're going to go to our interview now with Ken Golden. And we are with Pastor Ken Golden. And he is an OPC pastor in Davenport, Iowa. And some of you, if you've listened for very long, have heard us talk about the book Presbytopia. And that you will you um, just offer really quick a quick summary on what Presbytopia is about. Sure, that name is a curious name. It was a name that the publisher liked that we were kind of uh, struggling to find a title. The name is actually a made-up name, as far as I know. Although some people don't like it because it sounds too much like Presbyopia, old eyes, and certainly certainly not about that. But it, it, it literally means old place, kind of like utopia, which is no place, and dystopia, which means bad place. Um, I used it simply because it, it, it sounds a little bit like Presbyterian. And um, our standards, uh, our historical tradition is an old place that is always generating um, good things, the, the place that you can keep going back to. So the reason I wrote that book was 
I think our, our tradition is is really uh, does think certain things really well, and we, we have great scholarship. We are deep thinkers. Uh, we have a profound grasp of theology, and all of those things are true. But sometimes our our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses, and sometimes we talk over people's heads. Sometimes we feel like we're not smart enough to be in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church or another Presbyterian denomination. So, and, and that that's oftentimes reflected in membership material and uh, introductory material to to our tradition. So, uh, as a as a pastor and a church planter, uh, I I like to write things as simply as I can, distilling profound truths on a level that people can understand it. And uh, long story short, I wanted to write a book. I, I had a, an outline for a number of years that I was using, and I turned it into a book because I felt like there was a need in our circles for something that was more accessible, more basic, without giving up um, the depth of, of what we're looking for. The reason why we're having you on this this time, but although I think we'll have you on again about Presbytopia sometime in the future, because I that's a, a great book and a great subject that would fit in with our podcast. But we're going to talk to you tonight about your book on the Sabbath called Entering God's Rest, the Sabbath from Gen- Genesis to Revelation and what it means for you. And I really enjoyed this book. And I wanted to just mention um, before we talk to you about it, that I was thinking as I was reading through it that this would make a great Bible study book as something to go through with a, a group at church. You even have questions at the end that can be used for discussion, or if you're going to go through it on your own too. I, I always love stuff like that, just to kind of think through what I've I've read. So this is really, I think, a, a book you can go through on your own, a great mm-hmm. book, I would say, for married couples to go through if the idea of the Sabbath is new to you, and or with a book group or Bible study group at church. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I thought it was uh, perfectly set up for, for something like that, a nice little study um, for a few weeks long. We have women ask us all the time uh, for recommendations of, of books for, for a book study for a group. So I think this would be great. So why don't we just start by, how about you tell us what the book is about? Obviously, it's about the Sabbath, but there's a lot of books on Sabbath. And what is your book specifically about? Sure. Well, simply put, uh, Entering God's Rest is a book about rest. But it's not just about any rest. It's about God's rest, which he calls the Sabbath. Uh, there's a couple of things that I mentioned in the intro that the book is not about. Sometimes it's helpful to know what something isn't about in order to highlight what it is about. Uh, it's not a historical historical interpretation or, or survey of Sabbath interpretation. Uh, so so I'm, not, I'm not going through church history and the Puritans and all of that and, and covering all of that. And I'm, I'm also not giving my readers a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, Rather, this book is about entering God's rest, which means understanding the Sabbath, what it originally meant, how it uh, uh, ebbs and flows from Genesis to Revelation, uh, and how it applies to us, and how it applies to us 
comes through the exercise of biblical wisdom with a sensitivity to liberty of conscience. Those are some of the concepts that I talk about in the book. You mentioned just now, Ken, um, about where the Sabbath originated and how it ebbs and flows through redemptive history. Start for just a second telling us a little bit about how did the Sabbath originate? Right. It's almost easier to start with, with when did the Sabbath originate? Sure. It originated at the close of the creation week in Genesis chapter 2. When God looked upon his perfect creation and said, it is very good. And then we read about the Sabbath. In chapter one, you talk about rest for God, and even you, you talk about that in quite detail. So what does it mean for God to rest? Yeah, that's, a, that's an unusual word to, to, at, to attribute to God, uh, because when we think of God, we think of somebody who's all-powerful. And the Bible even tells us in Isaiah 40 that God doesn't get tired. So if he doesn't get tired, he doesn't need to rest. So then resting for God is different in the way we think of rest. But in the ancient world, there was a different way of thinking about rest. And I talk about it in in that chapter as enthronement. And I would have us picture a king in the ancient world a king who accomplishes something important, something momentous, like defeating a powerful army or building a palace or a temple. And once the army is defeated and the palace and the temple are completed, the king ascends his throne. He looks over his achievement and he rests. And by resting... He's not resting because he's tired. He's resting because he is enthroned. He becomes the object of praise, even worship. And that's how God rests. Uh, That's how the Psalms describe God's resting. I I cover some of those Psalms in chapter 1, which connect God's rest to our worship. So what do we mean when we say that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance? Right. So there's a number of creation ordinances that we find in the Bible. And these are things that were instituted before the fall. These were things that were instituted at creation. And we think of marriage, uh, where Adam and Eve uh, became one flesh in Genesis 2. We think of the concept of work, where Adam was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it or guard it. And we think of the concept of Sabbath, which we already discussed in Genesis 2. And The thing about creation ordinances is that they continue as long as the present creation continues. So that that tells us right there that the Sabbath does not go away. It is for this present creation. And I I think that's super important. We've talked before on the podcast um, about some things that you talk about in the book, like the law and why the Sabbath is still for today. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So that does that kind of lead us into, okay, if it's still for today, which you make a very compelling case, then the question becomes, okay, how does it work today? What's it about? 
and we're going to we're going to get into that as we go through and really this book we're only going to touch on some of the themes i highly recommend you go pick it up especially if you're one of our listeners and i know we have a lot of them that are trying to understand the Sabbath, maybe grew up in dispensationalism and are new to Reformed theology. And uh, just talked to somebody today that came out of dispensationalism and is trying to understand some of this. So in the book, one, one of the quotes that I highlighted, and there was several, but this one really stuck out to me. You say, yet the Sabbath had a unique function at this stage of redemptive history. And I think in here you're talking about the Ten Commandments here. We know this by its place in the Mosaic Covenant. Even though there were nine other commandments, the Sabbath is singled out as a sign of the covenant. So can you tell us, how is the Sabbath a sign of the covenant? Well, a covenant sign is intimately connected with the covenant that it signifies. And we have other examples of this. We have circumcision, which was a covenant sign that was given to God's people, and it became the covenant sign, even though it was given to Abraham originally. It became the covenant sign for the Mosaic Covenant in order to become part of the covenant community, the community of believers. One had to be circumcised on the eighth day. These were for males back then converts and their children. And the Sabbath is also a sign of this covenant. It's a sign of being set apart to God who gives his people rest. And the rest that is is um, presented to Israel comes in the form of a land, a promised land, which is like paradise. It's, it's described in, uh, in similar ways. Garden, the Garden of Eden was given to God's people in the early chapters of Genesis, at least uh, as, as the beginning of something. And then later on, we see that the, the land of promise is also given to God's people as a land of rest. And we know that because uh, other places in the Bible describe it that way. The Sabbath is a sign being set apart to God who gives his people rest. So how do we know then that the Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath, are still binding for Christians today? That's a great question. Uh, I know uh, our dispensational brothers and sisters uh, might have some differences of opinion uh, with that. Uh, The Westminster Standards teach us that the Ten Commandments summarize what's called the moral law. So I talk about the three categories of law in this book, I think that's a very important distinction. The Bible mentions the word law, but it, law is used in different ways. Uh, there are laws that uh, certainly have uh, specific consequences for Israel that involve uh, blessings and curses. There are laws that involve sacrifices and uh, are connected to the temple. And then there's a law that's called a moral law which is written on human hearts, and that goes all the way back uh, to the creation of man. So you have the moral law, which is the, uh, the law that continues in all times and places. But that law is not even unique to Israel. It's written on all human hearts. You have the ceremonial law, which is the law that, is, that uh, was given specifically to Israel and was fulfilled uh, in Christ in the New Testament. It has to do with 
types and shadows. Later we'll be, I imagine, you're going to be asking me questions about Colossians 2. There's a lot of ceremonial law uh, references in there. And then there's the judicial law, which is the way uh, Israel legislated these laws. Mm-hmm. So the Ten Commandments summarizes the moral law, even though I, I make an argument that there are other aspects of law in there as well that, that do not continue. Uh, the substance of the Ten Commandments is moral law, which means it's for all times and places. And we find this in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaks of bitterness as the root of murder. But he's still thinking about the commandment, you shall not murder, but he's deepening it. He's thinking about the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and he's talking about lust in our minds. And then in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, what we find is a list of offenders of various commandments that we would find in the Ten Commandments. These offenders are, are, are also um, condemned uh, for their sins uh, in the New Testament as well. So there's all kinds of references to the Ten Commandments, even if, if they're not spelled out the same way. And just summarize this by saying that the Ten Commandments, if they summarize the moral law and the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, well, then the Fourth Commandment, which is the Sabbath commandment, applies to us today. I don't know if you would know the answer to this, but it's something that some gals in our group have asked us. Um, there's, and I saw this actually in my growing up too, but there's, we have a lot of gals that have come out of dispensationalism and a lot of them grew up with an honoring of the Sabbath. And, um, even, even I remember that same thing with my grandparents who were dispensationalists still had a view of the Sabbath. Do you know anything about the history of that or whether there were dispensationalists that honored the Sabbath? Wow. That's a really good question. I, I am, I am not an expert on that. Although what, what comes to mind and, you know, this is this is purely my opinion. Is that in the twenty in the nineteenth century, uh, Sabbath keeping was a cultural phenomenon, and and that that really has has gone away. I remember as a child growing up in New Jersey, that the malls were closed on Sundays, and I think that's still the case. These blue laws are still the case in you know certain industries, but I think that was part of the culture in the 19th century. And it's possible that the cultural Sabbath keeping was, was something that uh, Christians did in the 19th century of variety of stripes of Christians, not just Presbyterians. My great grandparents were dispensationalists. And there's even a story of my great grandfather. Uh, he was a farmer of them saying uh His neighbor said that there's a big storm coming. We're going to have to start harvesting on Sunday. And he said, absolutely not. It's the Lord's Day. I'm not going to harvest on Sunday. And so I always found that a little bit fascinating. But what you said makes sense. In Colorado, we it's only in the last few years that they could even sell alcohol on Sundays. And you still can't buy a car on Sundays in Colorado. So some of those, I know those blue laws exist throughout the country. So you um, talk about the Levitical Sabbaths. Can you explain what the Levitical Sabbaths are? Yeah, this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. Uh, 
The Mosaic Covenant, it turns out, included not just one weekly Sabbath. We think of when we think of Sabbath, we think of the Sabbath that was instituted at creation on the seventh day, and that's the weekly Sabbath. But we discovered that there are other Sabbaths, or there are other days that are called Sabbaths of solemn rest. There are other days where God's people are prohibited from doing normal work. And those include some of the feasts, like unleavened bread, weeks, booths. Uh, they all had days of solemn rest. New moons later are associated with this, uh, which shows us that the Sabbath is not exclusive to one day. This is very important when we get to the New Testament, where we see how the Sabbath transfers from the seventh day to the first day of the week. So- what is the fencing the Sabbath and the reasons for it? Yeah, the fencing of the Sabbath uh, was a practice, it was a later practice uh, that involved a careful observance of the Sabbath and even expanding the requirements of the Sabbath beyond um, uh, what Scripture required. Um, the, the reasons were sincere. I think they were noble reasons for the most part. Uh, very observant Jews, uh, some of them would later become associated with, with the Pharisees, uh, which was a particular group of Jews. Um, basically, that every conceivable thing should be considered and covered so that nobody could possibly break the Sabbath. There's so many ways that these commandments apply to our day-to-day living, and I I think the Pharisees and others like them wanted to cover every possibility they could to protect God's people from violating the Sabbath. So it's kind of like the working out of the do's and don'ts on every single level far in advance. Exactly. This is the the original do's and don'ts, I I would Mm. say, well beyond uh, what we read in, in the Old Testament. You know, this is a question that comes up a lot. In fact, periodically, it'll even come up in our group and in discussions. How is the Sabbath transferred to the Lord's Day? Right, right. I, we, we rent uh, from Seventh-day Adventists uh, here in Davenport, and they're a great group of people. We have a great relationship with them, but obviously... They worship on Saturday, and we worship on Sunday, which is a great arrangement for us as a church plant. But obviously, these are two different days. Both of us can't be right. We could easily spend an hour just talking about this question. But I would take us back to the Levitical Sabbaths, um, which were not tied to one day. Uh, They often fell on two particular days, the seventh day, but also the first day of the week, which could also be understood as the eighth day. Uh, these are various festivals had um, first or eighth days as Sabbaths of solemn rest. And that's important because the number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. The number eight, though, is the number of new beginnings. That's why um, male children are circumcised on the eighth day. And there are other connections to the number eight, which have to do with new beginnings. Um, Jesus um, was hanging on the cross, and he died, and he completed the 
the work of redemption on the cross, he was taken down from the cross and he was placed in a tomb. And he spent the Sabbath day in the tomb, as it were, resting. While the women were resting from their labors, they wanted to entomb him with spices and whatnot. He was resting in the tomb from the work of redemption on the seventh day. Notice what happens in the very next verse. I'm thinking about Luke chapter 23 and Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, he rose from the dead. First day of the week. So the resurrection is extremely important in this discussion of Sabbath. Resurrection is the guarantee that there'll be a harvest of resurrections, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So his resurrection is the guarantee that we, his people, will enter God's rest. I haven't defined that yet, have I, in this podcast. Entering God's rest is, is another way of saying eternal life. Spending the rest of eternity in a blessed state with God. Hmm. And because of this, because the resurrection is the, is the game changer, you could say, and we're living on the other side of the cross, it's not so surprising that we read about Jesus appearing to his disciples on the first day of the week. And later in Acts, Acts chapter 20, the early church starts is meeting by that time, certainly earlier than that, uh, on the first day of the week, they're breaking bread. They're having the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week or the eighth day, of the day of new beginnings. It's not surprising that the collection was taken on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16. And it's not surprising that the Apostle John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Some people debate what the Lord's Day is, but we know from the earliest times in the church, Lord's Day was Sunday. The adjective that we find in the Lord's Day, Koryake, is shorthand for Sunday in the early church. So we have all of this evidence. There's no specific command that says, um, thou shalt worship on the first day of the week. We don't need that. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, talks about interpreting the Bible. Um, sometimes we need to interpret it through good and necessary consequence, which means we connect the dots. We see a thread of evidence showing that something is happening over the course of Scripture. And here I think there's uh, very uh, strong evidence to show that the Lord's Day is the day of worship for God's people, but it's also connected to the Sabbath because of the resurrection. So, Ken, you mentioned earlier in our conversation um, people talking about Colossians 2, and so let's go on and talk about it. Some people use Colossians 2, 16 and 17, of course, to argue that we are no longer to honor the Sabbath, and I'll just read it for our listeners. Um, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what is the Sabbath 
that's being referred to in this passage? And how does this relate to whether or not we should still honor the Sabbath? Well, I think we have to take this passage seriously. One of the things that any tradition of Christianity likes to do is minimize the difficult uh, the problem texts for its, its particular um, uh, doct- dis- doctrinal distinctives. Uh, we are a church that, that um, in a tradition that values continuity as well as discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but certainly more continuity than a lot of Christians today. So like we've been talking about all along, Sabbath doesn't go away. Sabbath is a creation ordinance. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can't simply read Colossians 2 in isolation. If Colossians 2 becomes our starting point, we might end up believing that the Sabbath has no meaning for us. But that's, that's not a good way to read Scripture. If we start in the Old Testament and we see that the Sabbath is the creation ordinance and that the Sabbath is part of the moral law that was given at Sinai, then the Sabbath does have continuing validity for us. Even so, we have to take Colossians 2 seriously. Colossians 2 talks about Sabbath. Now, some people will say, well, that's, um, that's not the creational Sabbath that's in view there. I'm not going to give away everything that I, that I argue in chapter 7, but I think in, in, in summary, um, we have to take seriously that the Sabbath in the Old Covenant was, was included in that Levitical system. That even though it's a creation ordinance, it became part of the Mosaic Covenant. It became part of um, the ceremonial law, but it still had these moral uh, qualities as well. And I talk about the intermingling between the ceremonial and the moral in that chapter. The way I would the way I would I would simplify this is I would say that we should guard against making our Sabbath look like an Old Covenant Sabbath. Because clearly that's what's in view in Colossians 2. Uh, Paul is saying don't pass judgment on questions of ceremonial things like food and drink or festivals, new moons or Sabbaths now. They're not all ceremonial. I mean, there's moral qualities to the Sabbath as well. But, But he clearly has the Old Covenant in view here. He's not talking about the Lord's Day. Um, he's not saying don't, you can, you can attend church if you like on the Lord's Day. No, that's not in view. But as he's thinking of Sabbath, he's saying the Old Covenant Sabbath is, is not necessarily the way Christians should, should practice it. Mm-hmm. The Old Covenant is the Old Covenant. You know, this chapter, I think, is really helpful, um, and specifically, I think, for some of our listeners, we have ladies in our group who sometimes when this question comes up and maybe the idea of honoring the Lord's Day um, as the Sabbath is new to some of our friends who join our group, um, and sometimes I think the objection comes up pretty quickly, um, so we're just supposed to do... Um, the Sabbath exactly as the Old Testament says. And uh, 
I, I find this chapter helpful. You, you're essentially saying that this this passage here is helping us to understand, no, it's not an exact one-to-one transfer. And, you know, we're going to move into what the rest of your book is about, but, you know, there's wisdom involved. So I think that's very helpful. Yeah, and this is where this the pharisaical approach of coming up with a list of do's and don'ts is unhelpful because we have to make sense of Colossians 2 in light of some of the other things we've we've talked about already. And what does it mean to not have your Sabbath look like the Old Covenant? Mm. Well, obviously, you know, the sacrifices and the seventh day are things that are part of the, the Old Covenant, and we worship on the first day of the week, and we don't have to uh, perform any more sacrifices because Jesus is uh, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. So the, the, those are no-brainers. But I do think that, the, that, that what Paul is suggesting here to the Colossians goes beyond that. And how we work that out, I think we'll, we would have to talk more about wisdom and liberty of conscience. Another argument we hear actually quite often against uh, honoring the Sabbath is that Jesus fulfilled the law. Can you talk about what that means, that Jesus fulfilled the law? And, um, and where our Sabbath keeping fits into that. Yeah. Yeah. In Matthew five, he talks about, um, fulfilling the law, not abolishing it, but fulfilling it. Um, what does that mean? I mean, that can mean a number of things. I, I, I think the, the easiest thing that comes to mind is that, uh, he fulfills the law so that we don't have to keep the law in order to be saved. Um, God saves us based on Christ's law-keeping, not ours. Uh, The law says, you know, looking at another commandment, the law says, you shall not murder. Well, Jesus interpreted that for us. He he deepened uh, the meaning of that commandment by showing us that murder begins in the heart. So when we're bitter toward our brother, when we uh, say things out of the bitterness of our heart that that are hurtful to our brother, in a sense, we're we're breaking that commandment as well. We're committing a type of murder. Uh, so we are guilty of that of that commandment. But Jesus fulfilled the law so that those sins are covered, and yet God still does not want us to murder. And I would say the same thing goes for the Sabbath. Um, Jesus fulfilled uh, all of the uh, Sabbath requirements uh, for us, but he still wants us to keep the Sabbath, which I argue for in the book, although I I also argue that there's continuity and discontinuity, because this commandment in particular is fairly complex. Uh, We need to let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Sometimes our starting point determines our ending point. If we um, go to Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, or Deuteronomy chapter 5, or Isaiah 58, I have a whole chapter on that as well, and we stay in that text, um, and we don't move from that text and see what the New Testament says about the Sabbath, then we're letting uh, the Old Testament interpret the New Testament, uh, rather than seeing the flow of redemptive history. So the New Testament interprets the Old, which means Colossians 2, again, becomes an important text for us. 
I actually really appreciated that about your book, um, taking all of the relevant passages and the whole of scripture about this topic. You actually said in one of your chapters that a lot of people begin and end in Exodus and the Ten Commandments, and that's really all they examine with regard to the Sabbath. And so you take a very uh, holistic approach, and I appreciated that. Um, what then do we mean? You talk a little bit about already and not yet. What do you mean by that? What do we mean when we say already and not yet in relation to the Sabbath? Right. The already and not yet is a great principle. It's a great way of, of interpreting uh, some, some challenging passages in Scripture. Oftentimes it, it's connected to the kingdom of God, where we see there's a present reality, that we have in the kingdom of God and also a future sense. The present reality is the already sense, and the future sense is not yet. So I'm thinking off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Ephesians uh, chapter 2, where we're seated in the heavenly places. Well, we're not really seated in the heavenly places yet. I'm seated at my chair in my house, and you're all uh, seated at chairs in, in your homes. We're not seated in heaven yet, but from God's perspective, we are. So that's an already sense. That's an already an established fact that we are, we are already saved in the sense in, in God's eyes because he's eternal. But we have not yet fully experienced the reality of that salvation. That's the not yet. So how that relates to the Sabbath, well, I think here's where... Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 come into play, and I also talk about chapter 10. These are very important chapters. In fact, this is, these are the chapters where I get the title of my book from, Entering God's Rest. Uh, when we read Genesis uh, chapter 2, we have to um, read Hebrews with it as well, because Hebrews chapter 4 is interacting with Genesis chapter 2. There's an already sense in Hebrews chapter 4, The already sense is that we have already entered God rest by faith in Jesus Christ. That we are already seated in the heavenly places because of what Jesus has done for us and that we've received the gift of faith. That's the already sense. But the not yet sense is also spoken about in this particular chapter. Uh, Chapter 4 says there, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is not talking about uh, the weekly Sabbath. He's not talking about our, necessarily they're talking about our Sabbath observance at church on the Lord's Day. What he's talking about is eternal life. He's talking about going to heaven. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. But what about this time in between? We've already been saved. We already have entered God's rest, and yet we have not yet entered God's rest. What do we do in the time in between until we do fully enter God's rest? Well, that's why we celebrate the Sabbath on the Lord's Day. Because the Lord's Day is the interim day. The Lord's Day is the transitional day. The Lord's Day is the dress rehearsal. Coming full circle, what does it mean for us as Christians to honor the Sabbath? Well, that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? I I suspect um, a number of people who buy the book are probably going to be tempted to skip those first eight chapters because, well, we'll get to it at some point. Just tell me what to do. What am I supposed to do on Sunday? 
and keep the Sabbath. Well, this chapter, I cover that, that application of everything that the book discusses through this concept of wisdom, rest and worship. If you had to summarize what, what the Sabbath is all about for us, it's about rest and worship. But we, we rest and worship through the exercise of wisdom. Now, there's a lot of good definitions of wisdom. I define wisdom in the book, I'm, I'm quoting from uh, my last chapter, as the application of knowledge based on biblical principles and common sense. It involves grasping how the world works and applying God's expectations to specific situations. So that wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's not just their knowledge. It's based on what God's word tells us, but the world is also capable of, of having wisdom, and that comes from common sense. It comes from tapping into the law that is written on human hearts. Um, but it's circumstantial. It's applying God's expectations to specific situations, which might be different from one person to the next. Not completely different per se, but there could be some differences. And where this chapter goes, obviously there, there's a few things. Uh, I, I mentioned three, but there's, there are a number of other things that people grapple with when they think about the Sabbath. And some of the things, the most common things, would be, can I eat out at a restaurant on Sabbath, on, on the Lord's Day? Uh, can I watch sports on television on the Lord's Day? Can I participate in some recreation on the Lord's Day? And my goal in this chapter is not to come down hard, line on a particular one side or the other, what I try to do is, is present different pros and cons for these things, knowing that there are some people who are very strict in their Sabbath keeping, and there are others who are looser in their Sabbath keeping. They're still taking the Sabbath seriously, but they're coming to different conclusions. And the goal of this book is not to prove one side wrong and the other side right. It's to provide a place where people can consider the complexity of all of this and find a way to get along. And that's, that's what this chapter is about. It's, it's helping us use wisdom to look at the circumstances in our life so that we can keep the Sabbath, but our Sabbath keeping might not be exactly the same as our neighbor's. So there's no list of do's and don'ts. Divine God's word and common sense to our circumstances. When you said what the Sabbath was about, you said rest and worship. You didn't say what the Sabbath is about is this list of things you can't do. You said what it is about is rest and worship. Rest and worship. And I would focus on rest that enables us to worship. Mm. However, there is, there's also... Uh, I, I think the uh, the Exodus generation certainly would would agree to this that physical rest is somewhat underrated, and when you're working seven days a week as slaves in Egypt, 
and now you have this opportunity to rest one day a week, I think you'd be jumping at that opportunity. So I think physical rest certainly comes into play with all of this. Physical rest in of itself, because we live in a, in a very hectic world. And God gives us a day where we can rest our bodies and we can refresh our souls. And what that looks like, I, I think there are some there are some bare minimums, of course, that that we have to we have to establish. I think worship on the Lord's Day is is something that should be non negotiable. The Bible doesn't doesn't require two services. Two services might be very very wise in some circumstances. For mission work, um, starting out, they might not be. Um, but using the day, um, certainly to worship God when he calls us to worship, and also to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, spend time with our families, uh, to talk about spiritual things, to also enjoy God's creation. And before I start coming up with a list of do's and don'ts, I'm going to stop. I think that's that's really helpful too because a lot of times when these discussions come up, it is it is about what can I do, what can't I do, and that ends up becoming the focus, which I think is kind of a discouraging focus. Well, we're going to link in the episode notes where you can purchase the book. Um, a lot the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals site is the best place to purchase this book. If if you're a Kindle person, you can get the Kindle version on Amazon, um, but we'll link all of that in our episode notes. And, and also, we hope to have um, Pastor Ken Golden on again about his book, Presbytopia, so sometime in the future about that. And we just appreciate you joining us to talk about this. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. I I, I really appreciate what you're doing, and it's a a wonderful opportunity, so thank you. 